Theology of the Body Institute, this is the Ask Christopher West Podcast. Hi, podcast listeners. Jesus Christ is risen today. Ah, 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 le'elu'u. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He is. Today, if you're listening to this podcast when we post it, it is Easter Monday. Mm-hmm. Glory to God in the highest. Is it real? Like, really, I want to pause for a moment. And and I know we kind of go through the motions each year and we celebrate this thing called Easter. But what, what are we celebrating? It is amazing. If this is real, what do we have to worry about? Because the greatest worry is death. And death has truly been conquered, not in just some, your soul's going to live forever, but your body, your body is destined for glory. This is the declaration. This is the proclamation. Mm. Easter Sunday. Have you ever thought about those two words, Easter Sunday? Sunday. Sunday and Easter. What happens in the East? Sunrise. The sunrise. Easter Sunday is the declaration of the rising of the true sun of glory. Mm. And scripture says that the sun comes forth like a bridegroom from his chamber. And the Eastern Church especially emphasizes this understanding of the resurrection that Christ is coming out of the the chamber as the bridegroom on Hmm. Easter Sunday morning. Mm -hmm. Pretty awesome. Yeah. What are your favorite things about Easter, Wendy? Oh, yeah, I... I really have a, a love for the, the liturgies, the the readings and prayers that come in the, the that season, both at the end of Holy Week and and then for Easter. It is very special to me. I, I remember kind of uh, as a child not really knowing that much about what was going on during Holy Week. Um, it was not a thing in my family to go to the Holy Week um, liturgies. We just went on you know, Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday. So I remember when I began to be aware of it was um, in college and this like longing, oh, mm. I want to go to all the mm. Triduum services. And then in life with small children and just duties, I it has not always been possible for me to go to them all. But in some ways, that's okay with me. I accept that that's my limitations. I'm not saying all people in my situation couldn't go just the balance of my life that I I only get to certain ones each year but nonetheless I really treasure them and in the past um, couple years I've been able to go to the Easter vigil and um, that's a long one yes (laughs) but um, there's a, a lot of powerful prayers on on the Easter vigil that really um bless my heart, like the power of this night, that mm. phrase is used uh, in the in the prayers, the power of this night, this night in which we are ex- realizing that Jesus is risen. This night with in which we have certainty that the sun is going to rise yeah. on yeah. Easter Sunday. Right. It just, it's, it goes... It's like those words go deep inside and and there's like 
inside, deep in me, like a a desire to kind of meet those words somehow, like to have something inside me respond with as much power as the words seem to have. Yeah, it's good stuff. It just dawned on me recently, this is going to sound kind of dumb and obvious, why didn't I think of this before, but every time we go to sleep and wake up, right, we're going to sleep, the sun has gone down, we're going to wake up, the sun will have risen. The very mystery of the sun going down and the sun coming up and going to sleep and waking up, every day we're living this rhythm in the stars and in our very bodies of a kind of death and resurrection. Mm going to sleep, waking up, darkness, light. It's literally written into the universe, this mystery of, of Easter. And I, I can't help but also acknowledge that the very word Easter, I can't say it without thinking, <laughs> without, without thinking of Nacho Libre. And, <laughs> Changing uh, tone a little bit suddenly here. <laughs> and all Nacho Libre fans know exactly... What I'm thinking of when I think of Easter and Nacho Libre. Do you not realize that I have had diarrheas since Easter's? (laughs) Sorry, but there it is. That's my brain. From the sublime to the ridiculous. Oh, that's funny. There it is. Do you have any updates for us from the TOB Institute? (laughs) Yes, on that note. um, Yes, please check out our list of online and in-person courses. We've shared this on recent episodes, but we have an upcoming TOB1 online. We have an upcoming TOB1 in person at the end of May in Wisconsin. We're taking it on the road. We have my favorite course, uh, Theology of the Body and the Marian Mystery at the third week of June in person here in Pennsylvania. We have a TOB1 in person in second week of July. And at the very end of July, into the first week of August, we have a Theology of the Body and Spiritual Direction course here in Pennsylvania. So check out those links. And I want to point out also um, a particular benefit in joining our patron community. Not only are you supporting our work on a monthly basis, uh, which goes a tremendous way to enabling us to do this work. So grateful to everybody. Yeah for that. But there is a program I just want to highlight. We get a lot of questions about passing Theology of the Body on to teenagers, and there is a program for our patrons that Bill Dunahy, my esteemed colleague here at the Institute, did for teenagers and the Theology of the Body. So if that is of interest to you, you want to check out that benefit in our patron community. Yeah. And I'm ready with a question from a patron. Let's do it. Okay. This is from a patron named Amber. Hello, Amber. Thank you so much, Amber, for believing in what we're doing and supporting us. We're so grateful to you. So grateful. Amber says, I was raised Catholic, but not really. My family and I didn't go to church much, and religious conversation never entered the household. After I was confirmed, my family stopped going to church. While I am not in a relationship and am not moving toward marriage, I still think about how I would live out my vocation as a wife and mother. I fear that because I was not raised to have Catholic values or a deep love for Christ, I won't know how to instill these values in my children. I'm curious how you have raised your children in the church 
and how the teachings of TOB shaped your parenting. Mm. Have your children taken on your passion for TOB? And more importantly, have they come to love the Lord? Bless you, Amber. Wow, I, I hear so much in your question. I hear your your kind of a lament about your lack of being raised with this vision. Uh, you're not alone. Uh, there's many, many people I know. It's very common. You kind of go through the sacraments, you get confirmed, and then there's nothing else, and there's no talk about it in the home. And I would just invite you there just to ask the Lord for compassion for your family. I am utterly convinced that if people knew what the church really believed and taught and had had it proclaimed to them in a powerful, compelling way, uh, not that it's like, here's the great news and everybody just readily accepts it. We, we know there's more to it than that. There's a struggle. There's a rebellion in the human heart against the gospel. All of that is true. But I believe really in my bones, that if your parents had received this vision, they would have passed it along. Uh, and I invite you just to ask the Lord for compassion for your parents and their parents and their educators, whoever they were, because this message was not presented in a way that their hearts could receive, and that's why they didn't pass it on to you. There's a basic principle at work here. You can't give what you don't have. Uh, I was raised in a home where religion was a normal part of life, a, a normal part of conversation. Um, even I would say, I mean, from my perspective growing up, it was over the top, like it made me rebel and go the other direction. And the, the religious language in our, in our home, um, I don't want to be too harsh about it here. My, my parents were, were doing the best they could, like all parents do, um, or all parents of goodwill do. Uh, but they hadn't been given the theology of the body in their Catholic formation, so they weren't able to pass that along. And, yeah, the, 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 the way religion was presented to me was not attractive to my young heart. Uh, it became more and more attractive as I grew and had more life experience, and then when I encountered the theology of the body, that's what rocked my world and, and changed the whole direction of, of my life. Uh, yes, Wendy and I have certainly done what we thought was best in trying to present this to our children. We have five children, age 25 down to age 14, so they're at different stages of their journey. Um, and I don't, I don't want to read too much into their own journey. I can tell you we have had successes in the way we've had, we have parented, and we've had real failures. We've had real mistakes that we've made where we've really wounded our kids despite our best efforts. And our older children are now at an age where they're looking back at their childhoods and saying, yeah, that was a blessing, that was a gift, but that, man, you really, that was, that was not good. You really messed up there. And Wendy and I are needing to look at that and examine that and seek their forgiveness where where that's appropriate, and look at our own hearts, look at our own failures, look at our own wounds. And I'll, I'll tell you, one of the things that I've discovered in my own heart on this journey with my older children is, 
where I've really messed up is where I made this self-reliant vow to get it right. Mm. Like, you know, my dad or my mom messed up in this way. And I vow, like, it's not like I ever said that word, but internally I'm like, I will never do such X, Y, and Z to my kids the way my dad or my mom did to me. That kind of self-reliant determination is a vow that we make that might have a good intention behind it, but the real sin there is self-reliance. And the only way we can parent well is through grace flowing through us. And whenever we vow in that kind of way, I'm going to get it right, we are setting ourselves, ourselves, ourselves up for real failure. And I've seen that play itself out in the way that I have tried to raise our kids and failed. So, I mean, bottom line here, we're all broken. The wheat and the weeds grow together. Uh, this idea that I can get my life so in order that I'm not going to make any mistakes with my own kids is just not real. It's not realistic. It's some kind of utopian dream that doesn't correspond to reality. Uh, so I would say to all parents, yes, continue to learn and take in and receive the gift of the Catholic faith, uh, especially with the help of John Paul's theology of the body, which just illuminates the whole of our faith with such, a, with such a brilliant light. Continue on that journey. The more you take it in, the more it will come out uh, in, in beautiful ways with your children. Um, but don't set up this expectation that you're supposed to be perfect. It's, it's just not reality, right? When, when Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, it's not a demand like, you better get your SHIT together tomorrow or you're in trouble. What he's really saying is, be perfected as your heavenly Father perfects. Allow yourself to go on the journey, right? When the perfectionist hears, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, it strikes terror in the, in the soul. When the person who is at peace in his or her brokenness, knowing that he or she is loved right there, and the Lord's inviting us on a journey, we can hear those words as Jesus really meant them, be perfected as your heavenly Father perfects. Amber, I, 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 I'd invite you on that peaceful journey. Let the Lord come into those tender places, wounded places from your own childhood. Let him minister to you there, and that will flow out in the way you mother your children, if indeed God has that vocation for you. Yeah, I I think this is a great um, just thing to be thinking about when, Amber, when you said, I, I think about how I would live out my vocation as a wife and mother. Um, I just think that's so beautiful. That's a sign of um, just, there's been some experience in your life and you didn't share what it is, but that you've come to love the Lord. Like that is your final question. Have our children come to love the Lord? Oh, I forgot about that. And, you can answer that one. Yeah. And, and just that that is your heart not having been given that by your parents. What a, I just feel gratitude for the saving grace at work in your life and for the people who have um, introduced you to the Lord so that you could love him and that you have 
been incorporating theology of the body and your understanding of this broken world in which we live. It's a broken world, but it's a world in which grace is at work because Christ has come. He's revealed to us what it means uh, to be human, to be a gift um, in line with the love of the Father and His purpose for our lives. So I'm just rejoicing in all that is kind of between the lines in your question that has happened. Um, and I think for us, we we have tried, as Christopher said, in different ways, and some of which have been more effective than others, to share all of these things that are deep in our hearts with our children. Um, yes, I am so grateful to be able to say they love the Lord. And that is not to say that they haven't gone through times of darkness and rebellion or that they won't again in the future. Like that's all, you know, part of the mystery of each of their human lives. But even uh, one of our children who as a child, <laughs> it used to make me laugh because in bedtime prayers, <laughs> bedtime <laughs> prayers, just part of, you know, that living of faith with children. They, they appreciate that kind of closing ritual of the day when they're young and, and just to be praying with them and to have that be not just something sort of written and memorized, but a little bit more spontaneous and from the heart is maybe an example of how we've shared um, our faith with them. But one of the one of the boys used to say, when I'd say to him, is there anything you want to pray for? He would just say, I don't pray. <laughs> I mean, this is from like age four, five, six. I don't pray. <laughs> but that same son does pray now as he's gotten older and he does love the Lord and he does love the truth. And in some ways, you know, he's just grown up in a fertile environment. It's not all just been from us. It's our friends. It's his siblings. It's um, just all kinds of things that have been in kind of the the fertile ground of their lives. And I think that um, it's there's not one assignment that the Lord gives us like do this and this will result. But, but we are so called upon in all our relating with our children to try to nurture that, um, the ground of their home life and their friendships and their minds and hearts that the good seed can grow in it. Yeah. And I think one of the, the, the ways to make that ground fertile for the seed to grow <clears throat> is a real honoring of your children's individuality, sensitivities, freedom, freedom even to reject all that you're teaching them. Uh, if, if religion is imposed on our children, we're creating an environment where they will want to rebel, and rightly so, uh, because if they don't embrace it of their own accord, then it's not really theirs, it's yours that you've imposed on them. And that was the dynamic that I had growing up as a kid. I wanted to rebel, not because what I was being taught was necessarily uh, laughable or, or to be rejected or wrong even, but because even if it was good, it was being imposed, and the good can never be imposed. This is straight out of JP2. We never impose our faith. We only propose our faith, right? So there's a time and a place, yes, to say in our home, 
this is how we live our faith, and we're going to go to Mass on Sunday. There's a time and a place for that. But then they get to a certain age, 15, 16, 17, where it is right to give them freedom uh, and to honor their freedom, not to give them freedom, they have it, but to honor it and recognize, I can't impose this on you. I'm not going to impose this on you. Uh, you have to make your own decisions. You you need to own this for yourself. Um, it's a funny dynamic where, you know, morality gets imposed, religion gets imposed, and then they go away to college and they go to they go berserk. Well, that's kind of a demonstration that their freedom hasn't been properly trained. It's just been chained, right? Hasn't been trained. It's been chained, and now the chains have been broken, and now we're going going to go berserk. Uh, I think one of our our philosophies, I know one of our philosophies as parents has been to the training of their freedom, uh, to choose the good for themselves. Uh, to, and to do that, you have to demonstrate how beautiful and liberating the good really is. I mean, that could be a whole podcast, that could be a whole book, and I'm, I'll cut it off there just for the sake of getting to other questions. But it's so important that we understand we do not impose our faith, we propose it. And when we propose it in all its splendor, it's beautiful and attractive. Mm. Amen. Our next question is from a listener named Enrique. Hello, Enrique. Hi, dear Wendy and Christopher. Thanks be to God for your mission spreading the truth and love in Theology of the Body. Reflecting about original man and thinking how in the beginning man and woman were naked without shame, a question came to my mind. Do you think we will all be naked in the eschaton? If clothes are meant to protect us from being used and wanting to use others for our selfish pleasure, if in the eschaton we'll reach a level of virginity that's even higher than the one experienced by Adam and Eve, I don't think there should be a need for clothes in the resurrected eternal life. Enrique, I love, love, love your question. And when I was young and green and kind of new to teaching theology of the body back in the 90s, in answer to this question, I would just boldly assert, we're going to be naked without shame! Hooray! We're all going to be naked in the eschaton and the resurrection of the body. And some theologians who were maybe, not maybe, were certainly uh, wiser and more learned than myself, than than I was, um, said, Christopher, it's, you know, I know you're, you're trying to make a point here, and it's a valid point. There will be no shame. But, uh, you know, it's a little more nuanced than that. So let me put it to you this way, Enrique. The saints who've talked about seeing or having visions of the eschaton, when they've been asked, were people wearing clothing, it was kind of a non- issue. Like it wasn't, they didn't even notice whether they were wearing clothing. It wasn't even on the table as something to wonder about because there's no lust, there's no degradation of the human body, there's no need to cover it in a sh because of shame or fear of being degraded. But yet, Scripture uses various images here. It uses the image of clo white clothing as a sign of the glorified body. Scripture also uses, and here we are in, in Easter week, uh, it says right in the Scripture that Christ came out of the tomb and the grave clothes were left behind. 
What's this an image of? It's an image of the new Adam coming out of the ground, just as the first Adam did, naked without shame. Right? Does that mean physically the resurrected Jesus was not wearing clothing? I don't know. I wasn't there. I didn't see him. But my guess would be he had clothing on. But there's a theological point being made that is so significant here. So, so the point I'm trying to make is Scripture uses different images to get to the same point. Clothing as bright as light, as white, whiter than a fuller could dye them, right? Uh, clothing as bright as light and nakedness are both used to describe glorified bodies. So again, when the saints are asked, are they clothed? Are they naked? It's like, I don't know. I didn't even notice. If they were clothed, it was not to conceal anything. And if they were naked, it wasn't a problem at all because all the glory of God was being revealed through the human body. So are they going to be naked? Yep. Are they going to be clothed? Yep. But clothed with glory. Right? That's the saints. That's the way the saints put it. They're clothed with glory. And and glory does not conceal, it reveals. So naked, clothed, yes and yes. Glory is the operative word. We'll have glorified bodies. Sin and shame will be no more. And and our what, what the main point here is the true mystery of the person will be fully revealed, uh, but not in a way that is at all embarrassing or shameful or makes us want to hide. So in that sense, Enrique, can't wait to see your naked glory. (laughs) (laughs) And I can't wait for you to see mine. And if that seems weird to our listeners out there, uh, please don't project weirdness onto the holiness of it all. What I'm saying is, there will be no need to hide because we will know the fullness of our humanity and we'll want to share the fullness of our not in any funky weird way please don't please don't put funk and weirdness on this it's it's a holiness that we can't imagine i think i just end there it's a holiness we can't imagine hmm. that having been a theological question me if if you haven't noticed i am not the theologian <laughs> in the room <laughs> So I've kind of had my own private questions about this and mostly been trusting in God knows what's best and I'll rejoice in it there. I think of different times when I hear of um, people who've had visions of heaven or like near-death experiences. Sometimes they do describe some clothing. um, And all I can think of is that well, the person having that experience hasn't yet fully entered into the the glorified right, right. permanent state of bliss that we're longing for. So they wouldn't be ready for what those who have fully entered into right. it are ready for. So I don't want to let that be what informs my opinion of it. But I don't know that I need to have an opinion of it either. Just trusting completely, as you said, like in the glory and holiness of some of this other experience that is beyond what we can imagine, which is what the scripture says. That's what the scripture says. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard what God has ready for those who love him. If there's clothing, it won't be to conceal, it will be to reveal the glory. 
if there's not clothing, there won't be any hint of weirdness or funk about it mm. because the glory of God will be manifested through the theology of our bodies. That's, that's the end game, right? That's the end rea reality. The glory of God will be fully manifested in our glorified bodies. Wow. Awesome. I want to end when I go there. I want to go there with That's you. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> Bono, I want to go there with you. Yeah, baby. Next question is from a listener named Laura. Hi, Laura. Hi, Christopher and Wendy. Thank you so much for this podcast. I am not Catholic, but my previous roommate, who was, introduced me to TOB. And as a result, I've been absorbing your content constantly for the past year or two. Wow, Laura, that's exciting. I've recently entered my first dating relationship at age 21, which has been heavily influenced by TOB. Both my boyfriend and I are confident that this will lead to marriage. So we've had some real conversations that have raised some questions in my mind. When we've talked, I've been quite forward in saying I want to practice NFP in our future marriage. While he isn't opposed to it, he's hesitant about not using a form of contraception near the start or end of a fertile period. We wouldn't be in a suitable place for the first year or two after marriage to raise children due to my military commitment and his work. So he views it as the, quote, responsible thing to do. While I admire his desire to be a good father and loving husband, I don't ever want to participate in the marital act if it's not the real deal. The way you put it in a previous episode, calling it mutual masturbation, really drove home this for me and prompted my asking of this question. Any advice you have for placating his worries would be greatly appreciated. Bless you, Laura. I hear your open heart. I hear your desire to live the fullness of married life. I hear your love for your boyfriend. Uh, I, I understand his hesitations and fears and questions because I was there once in my own life before I, I really dove into these issues and understood what is at stake. But above all, Laura, I want to affirm your heart and your desire and what the Lord is doing in your life. You are absolutely correct to say, I want the fullness. She said, I don't want to participate in the marital act if it's not the real deal. Yeah, there you there it is, sister. Laura, you have seen what the real deal is. You felt it in your heart and you desire it. Do not compromise. Mm. Do not compromise. You are worth the real deal. I would go so far as to say that this issue is so important that if he doesn't come to see how important it is, and is still like wanting to justify contraception, that's a deal breaker. Like this is not the man to marry. Uh, do not marry this man if you're thinking, well, I'll marry him and, I, uh, you know, he'll change. No, this is something to work out before you get married, mm. before you get married. And, and here's a resource that I would strongly urge uh, and encourage you to read together. It's a book I wrote for Protestants uh, where I took my Theology of the Body for Beginners text, and instead of quoting the popes uh, extensively and the catechism and the saints extensively, uh, 
I draw from authors that Protestants turn to and trust and rely on. And I put it in a Protestant-friendly language without compromising any of the teaching. I, I took the, my Theology of the Body for Beginners text, and I made it accessible and palatable for a Protestant audience. And the book is called Our Bodies Tell God's Story. Hmm. We'll put a link to that in the show notes of this episode so that you can just click on there and get it. Um, I'd, I'd really encourage you to read it together. Or maybe, here's a suggestion, 10 pages a week separately and then talk it out, right? Uh, go grab a coffee, go to your favorite park, or just sit in a private place and, and just share your hearts with one another. Share what you're learning. Uh, invite him on a journey to look at this issue and tell him exactly what you told us. You want the real deal. And unless he's able to come to terms with this, you're not willing to, to compromise. Um, men will rise to the challenge that the women they love present to them most of the time. If that challenge is put in a way that is not degrading, is not nagging, is not off-putting, but is, hey, I know what I'm worth, and I'm inviting you to rise to the challenge of being a real man and loving me as I'm called to be loved. If you put that challenge out and he says, you know what, I'm just not up for that. I don't want to love you that way. I'm not ready to challenge myself that way. Well, you know then he's not ready to marry you. And that would be key to your discerning your vocation. Something I want to share with you too, Laura, is that you are at such an advantage in that when you talked about this, uh, when I engage in the marital act, I want it to be the real deal. It, it tells me that you and your boyfriend are not sexually active or having intercourse right now. That's so... Yeah uncommon and so such a grace already present in your relationship and one of the gifts that i really want you to to think on is that you are showing love for one another through that restraint through that um you're it's certainly not that it's not a desire it's built into us to desire it and so we're we're experiencing you know some just gift of grace to understand there's a meaning to our behavior and therefore we we have to choose not just to act on every desire but to orient ourselves toward the greatest good and the greatest good that you're oriented toward right now is a, is a love appropriate to your circumstances expressed in this way of not uniting your bodies that same kind of love is what married couples experience during times of abstinence when they're using natural family planning. But so many couples learning NFP have no prior experience of expressing love that way. Right. You point. have that. You have such a, a, an added benefit to go into marriage with that deep lived experience of this is an expression of my love and honor for your person and the the restraint when um, couples married couples have a reason to avoid pregnancy they understand this is a fertile time of their cycle of the woman's cycle but it's only fertile because of the two 
a woman's not just randomly fertile by herself it's the two together that create that possibility of new life when they recognize that's a beautiful gift that here i am called to love and honor on the husband's part to love and honor his wife but also on the wife's part to honor his fertility and honoring its goodness and not wanting to act against it in either that is such a deep experience of bonding love that you don't want to miss. You don't want to throw it out. You don't want to just contracept it away. You want to rejoice in it. Thank the Lord for it. Thank the Lord for the gift of your relationship and trust in his grace to enable you to grow in deeper love through times both of abstinence and times of the marital embrace. And also just to be motivated to bring your relationship to the place where there's no need to abstain. And just that gratitude for the gift of the children that the Lord wants to give you. And Laura, here's another very practical thing you could do. Take an NFP course together. Uh, look up the... Yeah, that is true. We recommend the organization, the Couple to Couple League. Uh, we'll put a link in the show notes to them as well, Couple to Couple League. Uh, there are lots of organizations out there that teach NFP effectively, and you go to any of those. But we, we like the approach of the Couple to Couple League. We've gotten to know what they do over the years. That's the one we would most recommend probably. Um, yeah, take a course. And, and that could be when, when a man learns how it all works, yeah. and a woman, of course, but I, I hear an anxiety in your boyfriend that I don't think this is really going to work. Yeah. And when a, when a man sees the, the data and when he sees how it can really, really work, hmm. that can be just a game changer for him. Wow. It can put, put him at ease. There are the moral questions to address, and that would be where my book, God, Our Bodies Tell God's Story, could be of service. But they're the very practical realities that can also be so helpful that you could learn just by taking a course together. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Well, we hope everybody's been blessed by our answers to these questions today. Please lift up the people who have asked these questions mm. and what's on their hearts. We're a global family here of people around the world who are listening to this podcast. And I just think it's so neat how... We can know one another through this technology and lift everybody up in prayer. Wendy and I continually are lifting you guys up in prayer. Yes. If you were blessed by what you heard today, please hit that share button. And if you're blessed by the work of this podcast and the Theology of the Body Institute, would you please prayerfully consider becoming a patron? We can't do the work that we do without people who believe in it and want to support it. We'd be so grateful to you if you would. And through the blessings of Easter, may you know it in your bones. You are an indispensable, irreplaceable, unrepeatable gift of life and love. Become what you are. Ask Christopher West is brought to you by the Theology of the Body Institute with music by Mike Mangione. Christopher and Wendy hope that the information provided is helpful to you, but remind you that they are not licensed counselors. If you are going through serious difficulty, a list of trusted counselors and psychologists can be found in the show notes.